0: Book fourth of the Joyful Wisdom Part one This Librivox recording is in the public domain The Joyful Wisdom by Friedrich Nietzsche translated by Thomas Common Book fourth Sanctus Januarius Thou who with cleaving fiery lances the stream of my soul from its ice dust free. Till with a rush and roar it advances, To enter with glorious hoping the sea. The brighter to see and purer ever, Free in the bonds of thy sweet constraint, So it praises thy wondrous endeavour, January, thou beauteous saint. Genoa, January, 1882 276 for the new year, I still live, I still think, I must still live, for I must still think. Sum ergo cogito, cogito ergo sum. Today, everyone takes the liberty of expressing his wish and his favourite thought. Well, I also mean to tell what I have wished for myself today, and what thought first crossed my mind this year. A thought which ought to be the basis, the pledge, and the sweetening of all my future life. I want more and more to perceive the necessary characters in things as beautiful. I shall thus be one of those who beautify things. Amor fati! Let that henceforth be my love. I do not want to wage war with the ugly. I do not want to accuse, I do not even want to accuse the accusers. Looking aside, let that be my sole negation. And, all in all, to sum up, I wish to be at any time thereafter only a yay-sayer. 2.7.7. Personal Providence There is a certain climax in life at which, notwithstanding our freedom, and however much we may have denied all directing reason and goodness in the beautiful chaos of existence, we are once more in great danger of intellectual bondage, and have to face our hardest test. But now the thought of a personal providence first presents itself before us with its most persuasive force, and has the best of advocates' apparentness in its favour. NOW WHEN IT IS OBVIOUS THAT ALL AND EVERYTHING THAT HAPPENS TO US ALWAYS TURNS OUT FOR THE BEST, THE LIFE OF EVERY DAY AND EVERY HOUR SEEMS TO BE ANXIOUS FOR NOTHING ELSE BUT ALWAYS TO PROVE THIS PROPOSITION ANEW, LET IT BE WHAT IT WILL, BAD OR GOOD WEATHER, THE LOSS OF A FRIEND, A SICKNESS, A CALUMNY, THE NON-RECEIPT OF A LETTER, THE SPRAINING OF ONE'S FOOT, a glance into a shop window, a counter-argument, an opening of a book, a dream, a deception. It shows itself immediately or very soon afterwards as something quote, not permitted to be absent. Unquote. It is full of profound significance and utility precisely for us. Is there a more dangerous temptation to rid ourselves of the belief? in the gods of Epicurus, those careless, unknown gods, and believe in some anxious and mean divinity, who knows personally every little hair on our heads, and feels no disgust in rendering the most wretched services? Well, I mean in spite of all this. We want to leave the gods alone, paren, and the serviceable genie likewise, and wish to content ourselves with the assumption that our own practical and theoretical skilfulness in explaining and suitably arranging events has now reached its highest point. We do not want to think too highly of this dexterity of our wisdom, when the wondrous harmony which results from playing on our instrument sometimes surprises us too much. A harmony which sounds too well for us to dare to ascribe it to ourselves. In fact, now and then, there is one who plays with us beloved chance. He leads our hand occasionally, and even the all-wise providence could not devise any finer music than that of which our foolish hand is then capable. 278. The Thought of Death It gives me a melancholy happiness to live in the midst of this confusion of streets, of necessities, of voices. How much enjoyment, impatience, and desire! How much thirsty life and drunkenness of life comes to light here every moment! And yet it would soon be so still for all those shouting, lively, life-loving people! How everyone's shadow! his gloomy travelling companion stands behind him. It is always as in the last moment before the departure of an immigrant ship. People have more than ever to say to one another, The hour presses. The ocean, with its lonely silence, waits impatiently behind all the noise, So greedily, so certain of its prey. And all, all suppose that the past has been nothing, or a small matter, that the near future is everything. Hence this haste, this crying, this self-deafening and self-overreaching. Everyone wants to be foremost in this future. And yet death and the stillness of death are the only thing certain and common to all in this future. How strange that this sole thing that is certain and common to all exercises almost no influence on men, and that they are the furthest from regarding themselves as the brotherhood of death. It makes me happy to see that men do not want to think at all of the idea of death. I would fain do something to make the idea of life even a hundred times more worthy of their attention. Two seven nine. Stellar FRIENDSHIP We are friends, and have become strangers to each other. But this is as it ought to be. We do not want either to conceal or obscure the fact, as if we had to be ashamed of it. We are two ships, each of which has its goal and its course. We may, to be sure, cross one another in our paths and celebrate a feast together as we did before, and then the gallant ships lay quietly in one harbour and in one sunshine, so that it may have been thought they were already at their goal, and that they had had one goal. But then the almighty strength of our tasks forced us apart once more into different seas and into different zones, and perhaps we shall never see one another again, or perhaps we may see one another, but know not one another again. The different seas and suns have altered us. That we had to become strangers to one another is the law to which we are subject. Just by that shall we become more sacred to one another, just by that the thought of our former friendship become holier. There is probably some immense, indivisible curve and stellar orbit in which our courses and goals, so widely different, may be comprehended as small stages of the way. Let us raise ourselves to this thought. But our life is too short and our power a vision too limited for us to be more than friends in the sense of that sublime possibility, and so we shall believe in our stellar friendship, though we should have to be terrestrial enemies to one another. 280. Architecture for thinkers. An insight is needed and that probably very soon en paren, as to what is specifically lacking in our great cities namely quiet spacious and widely extended places for reflection places with long lofty colonnades for bad weather or for too sunny days where no noise of wagons or of shouters would penetrate and where a more refined propriety would prohibit loud braying, even to the priests. Buildings and situations which, as a whole, would express the sublimity of self-communion and seclusion from the world. The time has passed when the Church possessed the monopoly of reflection, when the vita contemplativa, had always the first place to be the vita religiosa, and everything that the Church has built expressed this thought. I know not how we could content ourselves with their structures, even if they were so divested of their ecclesiastical purposes. These structures speak a far too pathetic and too biased speech as the house of God, and places of splendor for supernatural intercourse, for us godless ones to be able to think our thoughts in them. We want to have ourselves translated into stone and plant. We want to go for a walk in ourselves when we wander in these halls and gardens. 281. KNOWING HOW TO FIND THE END. Masters of the first rank are recognised by knowing in a perfect manner how to find the end, in the whole as well as in the part, be it the end of a melody or of a thought, be it the fifth act of a tragedy or of a state affair. The masters of a second degree always become restless towards the end and seldom dip down into the sea with a proud, quiet equilibrium as, for example, the mountain ridge at Portofino, where the Bay of Genoa sings its melody to an end. 2.8.2. The Gate There are mannerisms of the intellect by which even great minds betray that they originate from the populace, or, from the semi-populous, it is principally the gait and steps of their thoughts which betray them. They cannot walk. It is thus that even Napoleon, to his profound chagrin, could not walk quote, legitimately unquote, and in a princely fashion on occasions when it was necessary to do so properly, as in great coronation processions or, on similar occasions, even there he was always just the leader of the column, proud and brusque at the same time, and very self-conscious of it all. It is somewhat laughable to see those writers, who make the folding of robes of their periods rustle around them, they want to cover their feet. 283. Pioneers i greet all the signs indicating that a more manly and warlike age is commencing which will above all bring heroism again into honour for it has to prepare the way for a yet higher age and gather the force which the latter will one day require the age which will carry heroism into knowledge and wage war for the sake of ideas and consequences. For that end, many brave pioneers are now needed, who, however, cannot originate out of nothing, and just as little out of the sand and slime of present-day civilization, and the culture of great cities, men silent solitary and resolute, who know how to be contented and persistent in invisible activity, men who with innate disposition seek all things that which is to be overcome in them, men to whom cheerfulness, patience, simplicity, and contempt for the great vanities belong just as much as do magnanimity in victory and indulgence to the trivial vanities of all the vanquished, men with an acute and independent judgment regarding all victors, and concerning the part which chance has played in the winning of victory and fame, men with their own holidays, their own work-days, and their own periods of mourning, accustomed to command with perfect assurance, and equally ready, if need be, to obey, proud in the one case as in the other, equally serving their own interests, men more imperilled, more productive, more happy. For, believe me, the secret of realising the largest productivity and the greatest enjoyment of existence is to live in danger. Build your cities on the slopes of Vesuvius, Send your ships into unexplored seas. Live in war with your equals and be yourselves. Be robbers and spoilers, ye knowing ones, as long as ye cannot be rulers and possessors. The time will soon pass when you can be satisfied to live like timorous deer concealed in the forests. Knowledge will finally stretch out her hand for that which belongs to her. She means to rule, and possess, and you with her. 284. Belief in oneself. In general, few men have belief in themselves, and those few, some, are endowed with it as a useful blindness or partial obscuration of intellect. Paren what would they perceive if they could see to the bottom of themselves?" The others must first acquire the belief for themselves everything good, clever, or great that they do is first of all an argument against the sceptic that dwells in them. The question is how to convince or persuade this sceptic, and for that purpose genius almost is needed. They are singly dissatisfied with themselves. 2.8.5. Excelsior. Quote, Thou wilt never more pray, never more worship, never more repose in infinite trust. Thou refuses to stand still and dismiss thy thoughts before an ultimate wisdom, an ultimate virtue, an ultimate power. Thou hast no constant guardian and friend in thy seven solitudes. Thou livest without the outlook on a mountain, that has snow on its head and fire in its heart. There is no longer any requiter for thee, nor any amender with his finishing touch. There is no longer any reason in which that which happens, or any love in that which will happen to thee. There is no longer any resting place for thy weary heart. Where it is only to find and no longer to seek, thou art opposed to any kind of ultimate peace. Thou desirest the eternal recurrence of war and peace. Man of renunciation, wilt thou renounce in all these things? Who will give thee the strength to do so? No one has yet this strength. End quote there is a lake which one day refused to flow away and threw up a dam at the place where it had hitherto flowed away since then this lake has always risen higher and higher perhaps the very renunciation will also furnish us with a strength for which the renunciation itself can be borne. perhaps man will ever rise higher and higher from that point onward WHEN HE NO LONGER FLOWS OUT INTO A GOD. 286. A DIGRESSION. Here are hopes. But what will you see and hear of them? If you have not experienced glance and glow and dawn of day in thy own souls, I can only suggest I can do no more. To move the stones, to make animals men, Wilt you have me do that? Alas, if you are yet stones and animals, seek first your Orpheus. 287. Love of Blindness My thoughts, said the wanderer to his shadow, ought to show me where I stand, but they should not betray to me whether I go. I love ignorance of the future and I do not want to come to grief by impatience, and anticipatory tastings of promised things. Two eight eight, Lofty Moods It seems to me that most men do not believe in lofty moods, unless it be for the moment, or at most for a quarter of an hour, except the few who know by experience a long duration of high feeling. But to be absolutely a man with a single lofty feeling, the incarnation of a single lofty mood, that has hitherto been only a dream and an enchanted possibility, history does not give us any untrustworthy example of it. Nevertheless it could some day produce such men also, when a multitude of favourable conditions have been created and established which at present even the happiest chance is unable to throw together, perhaps that very state which has hitherto entered into our soul as an exception, felt with horror now and then, may be the usual condition of those future souls, a continuous movement between high and low, and the feeling of high and low, the constant state of mounting as on steps, and at the same time, reposing as on clouds, two eight nine aboard ship, when one considers how a full philosophical justification of his mode of living and thinking operates on every individual, namely as a warming, blessing, and fructifying sun, especially shining on him, how it makes him independent of praise and blame self-sufficient, rich, and generous in bestowing of happiness and kindness, how it unceasingly transforms the evil into good, and brings all the energies into bloom and maturity, and altogether hinders the growth of the greater and lesser weeds of chagrin and discontent. One at last cries out, inopportunely, that many such new sons were created. The evil man, also, the unfortunate man, and the exceptional man, shall each have his philosophy, his rights, and his sunshine. It is not sympathy with them that is necessary. One must unlearn this arrogant fancy, notwithstanding that humanity has so long learned it and used it exclusively. We have not to set up any confessor, exorcist, or pardoner for them. It is a new justice, however, that is necessary, and a new solution, and new philosophers. The moral earth also is round. The moral earth also has its antipods. The antipods also have their right to exist. There is still another world to discover, And more than one, aboard ship, ye philosophers. Two hundred and ninety, one thing is needful, to give style to one's character, that is a grand and a rare art. He who surveys all that his nature presents in its strength and in its weakness and then fashions it into an ingenious plan until everything appears artistic and rational. And even the weaknesses, enchant the eye, exercises that admirable art. Here there has been a great amount of second nature added, there a portion of first nature has been taken away. In both cases, with long exercise and daily labour at the task, here the ugly, which does not permit of being taken away, has been concealed. There it has been reinterpreted into the sublime. Much of the vague, which refuses to take form, has been reserved and utilised for the perspectives. It is meant to give a hint of the remotest and immeasurable. In the end, when the work has been completed, It is revealed how it was the constraint of the same taste that organized and fashioned it in whole and in part. Whether the taste was good or bad is of less importance than one thinks. It is sufficient that it was a taste. It will be the strong imperious natures which experience their most refined joy in such constraint, In such confinement and perfection under their own law, the passion of their violent volition lessens at the sight of all disciplined nature, all conquered and ministering nature. Even when they have palaces to build and gardens to lay out, it is not to their taste to allow nature to be free. It is the reverse with weak characters who have not power over themselves and hate the restriction of style. They feel that if this repugnant constraint were laid upon them, they would necessarily become vulgarised under it. They become slaves as soon as they serve. They hate service. Such intellects, they may be intellects of the first rank, are always concerned with fashioning and interpreting themselves and surroundings as free nature wild, arbitrary, fantastic, confused, and surprising. And it is well for them to do so, because only in this manner can they please themselves. For one thing is needful, namely, that man should attain to satisfaction with himself, be it but through this or that fable or artifice. It is only then that man's aspect is at all endurable. He who is dissatisfied with himself is ever ready to avenge himself on that account. We others will be his victims, if only in having always to endure his ugly aspect. For the aspect of the ugly makes one mean and sad. 291 Genoa. I have looked upon this city, its villas and pleasure-grounds, and the wide circuit of its inhabited heights and slopes for a considerable time. In the end I must say that I see countenances out of past generations. This district is strewn with the images of bold and autocratic men. They have lived, and have wanted to live on. They say so with their houses built and decorated for centuries, and not for the passing hour. They were well disposed to life, however ill-disposed they may often have been towards themselves. I always see the builder, how he casts his eye on all that is built around him far and near, and likewise on the city, the sea, and the chain of mountains. How he expressed power and conquest with his gaze all this he wished to fit into his plan, and in the end make it his property, by its becoming a portion of the same. The whole district is overgrown with the superb insatiable egotism for the desire to possess and exploit, and these men when abroad recognised no frontiers, and in their thirst for the new placed a new world beside the old so also at home everything rose up against everyone else, and devised some mode of expressing his superiority, and of placing between himself and his neighbour his personal ill Every Everyone won for himself his home once more by overpowering it with his architectural thoughts, and by transforming it into a delightful sight for his race. When we consider the modes of building cities in the north, the law, and the general delight in legality and obedience imposed upon us, we thereby divine the propensity to equality and submission which must have ruled in those builders. Here, however, on turning every corner you find a man by himself who knows the sea, knows adventure, and knows the Orient, a man who is averse to law and to neighbour as if it bored him to have to do with them a man who scans all that is already old and established with envious glances with a wonderful craftiness of fantasy he would like at least in thought to establish this anew to lay his hand upon it and introduce his meaning into it if only for the passing hour of a sunny afternoon when for once his insatiable and melancholy soul feels satiety, and when only what is his own, and nothing strange, may show itself to his eye. 292. To the Preachers of Morality I do not mean to moralise, but to those who do, I would give this advice. If you mean ultimately to deprive the best things and the best conditions of all honour and worth, continue to speak of them in the same way as heretofore. Put them at the head of your morality, and speak from morning till night of the happiness of virtue, of repose of the soul, of righteousness, and of reward and punishment in the nature of things, according as you go on in this manner all these good things will finally acquire a popularity and a street-cry for themselves. But then all gold on them will also be worn off, and more besides, all the gold in them will have changed into lead. Truly you understand the reverse art of alchemy, the depreciating of the most valuable things. Try for once another recipe in order not to realise as hitherto the opposite of what you mean to attain, deny those good things, withdraw from them the applause of the populace and discourage spreading of them, make them once more the concealed chastity of solitary souls, and say, Morality is something forbidden. Perhaps you will thus win over, for those things the sort of men, who are only of any account." I mean the heroic. But then there must be something formidable in them, and not as hitherto something disgusting. Might one not be inclined to say, at present, with reference to morality, what Master Eckhart says? I pray to God to deliver me from God. 293. Our Atmosphere we know it well, in him who only casts a glance now and then at science, as when taking a walk paren, in the manner of women, and, alas, also many artists In paren, the strictness in its service, its inexorability, in small matters as well as in great, the rapacity in weighing, judging, and condemning, producing something of a feeling of giddiness and fright, It is especially terrifying to him that the hardest is here demanded, that the best is done without the reward of praise or distinction. It is rather as among soldiers. Almost nothing but blame and sharp reprimand is heard. For doing well prevails here as the rule, doing ill as the exception. The rule, however, has here, as everywhere, a silent tongue." it is the same with this severity of science as with the manners and politeness of the best society. It frightens the uninitiated. He, however, who is accustomed to it, does not like to live anywhere but in this clear, transparent, powerful, and highly electrified atmosphere, this manly atmosphere anywhere else it is not pure and airy enough for him. He suspects that there his best art would neither be properly advantageous to anyone else, nor a delight to himself, that through misunderstandings half his life would slip through his fingers. That much foresight, much concealment and reticence would constantly be necessary, nothing but great and useless losses of power in this keen and clear element however he has his entire power here he can fly why should he again go down to these muddy waters where he has to swim and wade and soil his wings no there it is too hard for us to live we cannot help it that we are born for the atmosphere the pure atmosphere we rivals of the ray of light and that we should like best to ride it on the atoms of ether, not away from the sun, but towards the sun. That however we cannot do. So we want to do the only thing that is in our power, namely to bring light to the earth. We want to be the light of the earth. And for that purpose we have our wings and our swiftness and our severity. On that account we are manly, and even terrible like the fire. Let those fear us, who do not know how to warm and brighten themselves by our influence. 294. Against the disparages of nature. They are disagreeable to me, those men in whom every natural inclination forthwith, becomes a disease, something disfiguring or even disgraceful. They have seduced us to the opinion that the inclinations and impulses of men are evil. They are the cause of our great injustice to our own nature and to all nature. There are enough of men who may yield to their impulses gracefully and carelessly. But they do not do so for fear of that imaginary quote, evil thing unquote, in nature, that is the cause why there is so little nobility to be found among men. The inclination of which will always be to have no fear of one'self, to expect nothing disgraceful from oneself, to fly without hesitation, whithersoever we are impelled. We free-born birds. Wherever we come, there will always be freedom and sunshine around us. 295. Short-lived habits. I love short-lived habits, and regard them as an invaluable means for getting a knowledge of many things and various conditions, to the very bottom of their sweetness and bitterness, My nature is altogether arranged for short-lived habits, even in the needs of its bodily health, and in general, as far as I can see, from the lowest up to the highest matters. I always think that this will at last satisfy me permanently. The short-lived habit has also the characteristic belief of passion, and belief in everlasting duration. I am to be envied for having found it and recognized it, and then it nourishes me at noon and at eve, and spreads a profound satisfaction around me and in me, so that I have no longing for anything else, not needing to compare, or despise, or hate. But one day the habit has had its time, the good thing separates from me not as something which then inspires disgust in me, but peaceably, and as though satisfied with me, as I am with it, as if we had to be mutually thankful, and thus shook hands for farewell. And already the new habit waits at the door, and similarly also my belief. Indestructible fool and sage that I am, that this new habit will be the right one the ultimate right one so that it is with me as regards to foods thoughts men cities poems music doctrines arrangements of the day and modes of life on the other hand i hate permanent habits and feel as if a tyranny had come into my neighbourhood as if my life's breath condensed. When events take such a form that permanent habits seem necessary to grow out of them, for example, through an official position, through constant companion with the same persons, through a settled abode, or a uniform state of health, indeed, from the bottom of my soul, I am gratefully disposed to all my misery and sickness and to whatever is imperfect in me, because such things leave me a hundred back doors through which I can escape from permanent habits. The most unendurable thing, to be sure, the really terrible thing, would be life without habits, a life which continually required improvisation. That would be my banishment and my Siberia. 296 A fixed reputation A fixed reputation was formerly a matter of the very greatest utility, and wherever society continues to be ruled by the herd instinct, it is still the most suitable for every individual to give to his character and business the appearance of unalterableness, even when they are not so in reality. one can rely on him, he remains the same. That is the praise which has most significance in all dangerous conditions of society. Society feels with satisfaction that it has a reliable tool ready at all times in the virtue of this one, in the ambition of that one, and in the reflection and passion of a third one. It honours this tool-like nature, this self-constancy, this unchangeableness in opinions, efforts, and even in faults with the highest honours. Such a valuation, which prevails and has prevailed everywhere simultaneously with the morality of custom, educates quote, characters unquote, and brings all changing, relearning, and self-transformation into disrepute be the advantage of this mode of thinking ever so great otherwise. It is in any case the mode of judging which is the most injurious to knowledge. For precisely the good will of the knowing one ever to declare himself unhesitatingly as opposed to his former opinions, and in general to be distrustful of all that wants to be fixed in him, is here condemned and brought into disrepute the disposition of the thinker as incompatible with a fixed reputation is regarded as dishonourable while the petrification of opinions has all the honour to itself we have at present still to live under the interdict of such rules how difficult it is to live here when one feels that the judgment of many millenniums is around one and against one it is probable that for many millenniums knowledge was affected with a bad conscience and there must have been much self-contempt and secret misery in the history of the greatest intellects Two nine seven, ability to contradict everyone knows at present that the ability to endure contradiction is a high indication of culture some people even know that the higher man courts opposition and provokes it so as to get a cue to his hitherto unknown partiality but the ability to contradict the attainment of good conscience in hostility to the accustomed the traditional and the hallowed that is more than both the above-named abilities and is the really great new and astonishing thing in our culture the step of all steps of the emancipated intellect who knows that 298 a sigh I caught this notion on the way and rapidly took the readiest poor words to hold it fast so that it might not again fly away and now it has died in these dry words and hangs and flaps about in them, and now I hardly know when I look upon it how I could have had such happiness when I caught this bird. 299. What one should learn from artists? What means have we for making things beautiful, attractive, and desirable when they are not so? and I suppose that they are never so in themselves. We have here something to learn from physicians, when, for example, they dilute what is bitter, or put wine and sugar into their mixing bowl, but we have still more to learn from artists, who in fact are continually concerned in devising such inventions and artifices to withdraw from things until one no longer sees much of them, until one has even to see things into them, in order to see them at all, or to view them from the side and as in a frame, or to place them as though they partly disguise themselves, and only permit of perspective views, or to look at them through coloured glass, or in the light of the sunset, or to furnish them with a surface or skin which is not fully transparent, we should learn all this from artists, and moreover be wiser than they, for this fine power of theirs usually ceases with them when art ceases and life begins. We, however, want to be the poets of our life, and first of all in the smallest and most commonplace matters, 300. Prelude to Science Do you believe, then, that the sciences would have arisen and grown up if the sorcerers, alchemists, astrologers, and witches had not been their forerunners? Those who, with their promising and foreshadowing, had first to create a thirst, a hunger, and a taste for hidden and forbidden powers? Yea! that infinitely more had to be promised than could ever be fulfilled, in order that something might be fulfilled in the domain of knowledge. Perhaps the whole of religion, also, may appear to some distant age as an exercise and a prelude, in the manner as the prelude and preparation of science here exhibit themselves, though not at all practised and regarded as such. Perhaps religion may have been peculiar means for enabling individual men to enjoy but once the entire self-satisfaction of a god, and all his self-redeeming power. Indeed, one may ask, would man have learned at all to get on the tracks of hunger and thirst for himself, and to extract satiety and fullness out of himself, without that religious schooling and preliminary history? Had Prometheus first had to fancy that he had stolen the light, and he did penance for the theft, in order finally to discover that he had created the light, in that he had longed for the light, and that not only man but also God had been the work of his hand and the clay of his hands, all mere creations of the Creator, just an illusion, the theft, the Caucasus, the vulture, and the whole tragic Promethea of all thinkers? 301. Illusion of the Contemplative. Higher men are distinguished from lower, by seeing and hearing immensely more, and in a thoughtful manner. And it is precisely this that distinguishes men from the animal, and the higher animal from the lower the world always becomes fuller for him who grows up to the full stature of humanity. There are always more interesting fishing hooks thrown out to him. The number of his stimuli is continually on the increase, and similarly the varieties of his pleasure and pain. The higher man becomes always at the same time happier and unhappier. An illusion, however is his constant accompaniment all along. He thinks he is placed as a spectator and auditor before the great pantomime and concert of life. He calls his nature a contemplative nature, and thereby overlooks the fact that he himself is also a real creator and continuous poet of life that he no doubt differs greatly from the actor in this drama, the so-called practical man, but differs still more from the mere onlooker or spectator before the stage. There is a certain vis contemplativa and re-examination of his work peculiar to him as poet, but at the same time, and first and foremost, he has the vis creativa which the practical man or doer lacks whatever appearance and current belief may say to the contrary. It is we we who think and feel that actually and unceasingly make something which does not yet exist, the whole eternally increasing world of valuations, colours, weights, perspectives, gradations, affirmations and negations. This composition of ours is continually learnt practised and translated into flesh and actuality, and even into the commonplace, by the so-called practical man, our actors, as we have said. Whatever has value in the present world has not it by itself, by its nature. Nature is always worthless, but a value was once given to it, bestowed upon it, and it was we who gave and bestowed. We only created the world which is of any account to man. But it is precisely this knowledge that we lack, and when we have gotten it for a moment, we have forgotten it the next. We misunderstood our highest power. We contemplative men, and estimate ourselves at too low a rate. We are neither as proud or as happy as we might be. Three zero two, The Danger of the Happiest Ones To have fine senses and a fine taste, and to be accustomed to the select and the intellectually best as our proper and readiest fare, to be blessed with a strong, bold and daring soul, to go through life with a quiet eye and a firm step, ever ready for the worst as a festival, and full of longing for the undiscovered worlds and seas, men and gods, to listen to all joyous music, as if there were perhaps brave men, soldiers and seafarers, took a brief repose and enjoyment, and in the profoundest pleasure of the moment were overcome with tears and the whole purple melancholy of happiness. Who would not like all this to be his possession, his condition? It was the happiness of Homer, the condition of him who invented the gods of the Greeks, nay, who invented his gods for himself. But let us not conceal the fact that with this happiness of Homer in one's soul, one is more liable to suffer than any other creature under the sun. And only at this price do we purchase the most precious pearl that the waves of existence have hitherto washed ashore. As its possessor, one always becomes more sensitive to pain, and at last too sensitive. A little displeasure and loathing sufficed in the end to make Homer disgusted with life. He was unable to solve a foolish little riddle, which some young fishes proposed to him. Yes, The little riddles are the dangers of the happiest ones. 303. Two Happy Ones. Certainly this man, notwithstanding his youth, understands the improvisations of life and astonishes even the acutest observers. For it seems that he never makes a mistake although he constantly plays the most hazardous games. One is reminded of the improvising masters of the musical art, to whom even the listeners would fain ascribe a divine infallibility of the hand, notwithstanding that they now and then make a mistake, as every mortal is liable to do, but they are skilled and inventive, and always ready in a moment to arrange into the structure of the score the most accidental tone where the jerk of a finger or a humour brings it about and to animate the accident with a fine meaning and a soul. Here is quite a different man, everything that he intends and plans fails with him in the long run, that on which he has now and again set his heart has already brought him several times to the abyss and to the very verge of ruin, and if he has not yet got out of the scrape, it certainly has not been merely with a black eye. Do you think he is unhappy over it? he resolved long ago not to regard his own wishes and plans as of so much importance. If this does not succeed with me, he says to himself, perhaps that will succeed, and, on the whole, I do not know but that I am under more obligation to thank my failures than any of my successes. Am I made to be headstrong and to wear the bull's horns? That which constitutes the worth and the sum of life for me lies somewhere else. I know more of life because I have been so often on the point of losing it, and on that account I have more of life than any of you. 304. In doing we leave undone. In the main, all those moral systems are distasteful to me which say, Do not do this, renounce, overcome thyself. On the other hand, I am favourable to those moral systems which stimulate me to do something, and to do it again from morning until evening, and dream of it at night, and think of nothing else but to do it well as well as is possible for me alone. For him who so lives, there falls off one after the other the things that do not pertain to such a life, without hatred or antipathy. He sees this take leave of him to-day, and that to-morrow, like the yellow leaves which ever livelier breeze strips from the tree or he does not see at all, that they take leave of him, so firmly is his eye fixed upon his goal, and generally forward, not sideways, backwards, or downwards. Our doing must determine that which we leave undone. In that we do, we leave undone. So it pleases me, so runs my placitum, but I do not wish to strive with open eyes for my impoverishment. I do not like any of the negative virtues whose very essence is negation or self-renunciation. three Self-Control Those moral teachers who first and foremost order men to get himself into his own power induce thereby a curious infirmity in him namely a constant sensitiveness with reference to all natural strivings and inclinations and as it were a sort of itching whatever may henceforth drive him draw him allure or impel him whether internally or externally it always seems to this sensitive being as if his self-control were in danger. He is no longer at liberty to trust himself to any instinct, to any free flight, but stands constantly with defensive mien, armed against himself with sharp, distrustful eye, the eternal watcher of his stronghold, to which office he has appointed himself. Yes, he can be great in that position, But how unendurable he has now become to others! How difficult even for himself to bear! How impoverished and cut off from the finest accidents of his soul! Yea, even from all further instruction! For we must be able to lose ourselves at times if we want to learn something of what we have not in ourselves. Three o six stoic and epicurean. The epicurean selects the situations, the persons, and even the events which suit his extremely sensitive intellectual constitution. He renounces the rest that is to say, by far the greater part of experience because it would be too strong and too heavy fare for him. The stoic, on the contrary accustoms himself to swallow stones and vermin, glass splinters and scorpions, without feeling any disgust. His stomach is meant to become indifferent, in the end, to all that the accidents of existence cast at it. He reminds one of the Arabic sect of the Asaura, with which the French became acquainted in Algiers, and, like those insensible persons, he also likes well to have an invited public at the exhibition of his insensibility the very thing the epicurean willingly dispenses with he has of course his garden. stoicism may well be advisable for men with whom fate improvises for those who live in violent times and are dependent on abrupt and changeable individuals he however who anticipates that fate will permit him to spin a long thread does well to make his arrangements in epicurean fashion all men devoted to intellectual labour have done it hitherto for it would be a supreme loss to him to forfeit their fine sensibility and acquire the hard stoical hide with hedgehog prickles in exchange. 307. In Favour of Criticism Something now appears to thee as an error, which thou formerly lovest as a truth, or as a probability. Thou pushest it from thee, and imagine that thy reason has there gained a victory. But perhaps that error was then when thou wast still another person thou art always another person just as necessary to thee as all thy present quote, "truths" unquote, like a skin as it were were concealed and veiled from thee much which thou still mayest not see thy new life and not thy reason has slain that opinion for thee thou dost not require it any longer and now it breaks down of its own accord, and the irrationality crawls out of it like a worm into the light. When we make use of criticism, it is not something arbitrary and impersonal. It is, at least very often, a proof that there are livelier, active forces in us which cast a skin. We deny, and must deny, because something in us wants to live and affirm itself, something which we perhaps do not as yet know, do not as yet see, so much in favour of criticism. 308. THE HISTORY OF EACH DAY What is it that constitutes the history of each day for thee? Look at thy habits, Of which it consists? Are they the product of numberless little acts of cowardice and laziness, or of thy bravery and inventive reason? Although the two cases are so different, it is possible that men might bestow the same praise upon thee, and that thou mightest also be equally useful to them in the one case as in the other. But praising and utility and respectability may suffice for him whose only desire is to have a good conscience, not, however, for thee, the trier of the reins, who hast a consciousness of the conscience three oh nine. Out of the Seventh Solitude One day the wanderer shut a door behind him, stood still, and wept, and then said, Oh, this inclination and impulse towards the true, the real, the non-apparent, the certain! How I detest it! Why does this gloomy, passionate taskmaster follow just me? I should like to rest, but it does not permit me to do so. Are there not a host of things seducing me to tarry? Everywhere there are gardens of Amida for me, and therefore there will be always fresh separations and fresh bitterness of heart. I set my foot forwards, my weary wounded foot, because I feel I must do this. I often cast grim glances back at the most beautiful things which could not detain me, because they could not detain me. 310. Will and Wave How eagerly this wave comes hither, as if it were a question of its reaching something, How it creeps, with frightful haste, into the inmost corners of the rocky cliff! It seems that it wants to forestall someone. It seems that something is concealed there that has value, high value. And now it retreats somewhat more slowly, still quite white with excitement. Is it disappointed? Has it found what it sought? does it merely pretend to be disappointed? But already another wave approaches, still more eagerly and wild than the first, and its soul also seems to be full of secrets and of longing for treasure seeking. Thus live the waves, thus live we who exercise will. I do not say more, but what, ye distrust me? Ye are angry at me, ye beautiful monsters. Do ye fear that I will quite betray your secret? Well, just be angry with me. Raise your green dangerous bodies as high as ye can. Make a wall between me and the sun as a present. Verily, there is now nothing more left of the world save green twilight and green lightning flashes. Do as ye will ye wanton creatures, roar with delight and wickedness, or dive under again, pour your emeralds down into the depths, and cast your endless white tresses of foam and spray over them. It is all the same to me. For all is so well with you, and I am so pleased with you for it all. How could I betray you? For, take this to heart, I know you, and your secret. I know your race. You and I are indeed of one race. You and I have indeed one secret. 311. Broken Lights. We are not always brave, and when we are weary, people of our stamp are liable to lament occasionally in this wise, It is so hard to cause pain to men, oh, that it should be necessary! What good is it to live concealed, when we do not want to keep ourselves, that which causes vexation? Would it not be more advisable to live in the madding crowd, and compensate individuals for sins that are committed, and must be committed, against mankind in general? foolish with fools, vain with the vain, enthusiastic with the enthusiasts? Would that not be reasonable when there is such an inordinate amount of divergence in the main? When I hear of the malignity of others against me, is not my first feeling that of satisfaction? It is well that it should be so. I seem to myself to say to them, I AM SO LITTLE IN HARMONY WITH YOU, AND HAVE SO MUCH TRUTH ON MY SIDE. SEE HENCEFORTH THAT YE BE MERRY AT MY EXPENSE AS OFTEN AS YE CAN. HERE ARE MY DEFECTS AND MISTAKES. HERE ARE MY illusions, MY BAD TASTE, MY CONFUSION, MY TEARS, MY VANITY, MY OWLISH CONCEALMENT, MY CONTRADICTIONS. HERE YOU HAVE SOMETHING TO LAUGH AT. LAUGH, THEN, AND ENJOY YOURSELVES. I am not adverse to the law and nature of things, which is that defects and errors should give pleasure. To be sure, there were once more glorious times, when as soon as any one got an idea, however moderately new it might be, he would think himself so indispensable as to go out into the street with it and call to everybody, Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I should not miss myself if I were a wanting. We are none of us indispensable," End quote. as we have said. However, we do not think thus when we are brave. We do not think about it at all. 3:12 My dog. I have given a name to my suffering, and I call it quote, "dog." It is just as faithful, just as inopportune and shameless, just as entertaining, just as wise as any other dog. I can domineer over it, I can vent my bad humour over it, as others do with their dogs, servants, and wives. End of Book Fourth Sanctus Genuarius, Part One